So this morning, I want to explore with you a few foundational questions that perhaps what we call the three forming days of creation might help to answer for us. In doing so, I will say this sermon is a bit more academic in nature and much to my wife's chagrin, lacking in illustration. Perhaps that's why the weather came the way that it did. Um, first, what are we to make of a day? I made a brief reference last Sunday to um, the gap theory. It suggests that there is a long period of time that passes during chapter 1, verse 2. The theory tries to answer the earth age matter as well as explain the period in which Satan and his rebellious angels fell. Another theory that some biblical scholars have proposed is called progressive creationism. This view contends that the creation days lasted longer than a literal 24 hours. After all, 2 Peter 3.8 says that a single day is like a thousand years to the Lord. This, they say, best helps to explain the age of the earth. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite theological thinkers and pastors, supported a progressive creationism. Now, that said, he would never want anyone to confuse that view, his perspective in some way or another with theistic evolution, something that he readily dismisses. An overview of progressive creationism follows these central points. There's much more to it than this. One, to say that God created the world directly and deliberately over long periods of time while he left nothing to chance better corresponds to the geological ages and scientific disciplines than to say that the earth is only about 12,000 years old. Two, since creation consists of new forms of vegetation that are still progressing, it makes sense that the creation days of Genesis would launch extended periods of time where the earlier days simply continue to unfold during the later days. Three, progressive creationists say the language of the sixth day suggests a pause between the making of animals and the creation of man, so it makes sense that there would be other pauses as well. For those who counter voice, they say that such a progressive view would require death having entered into the world prior to sin. And so um, I know my friend Justin would say that, and, and voice at least tries to respond to it in a threefold manner. He says that First, fish would have eaten plankton, birds and animals would have eaten plants and the fruits and berries from plants, and that at least reflects something of death. Two, how would Adam have perceived the warning about death if he did not already have a concept of its meaning? And three, God's warning in chapter 2 is given directly to man concerning death to both his physical as well as his spiritual state. Not all creation has a soul. Only humanity was created in the image of God. While I can appreciate both the 
position of a gap theory, as well as the position of a progressive creationist, I don't think either system proves necessary, nor do they match with the most natural reading of the text. It's not necessary because, at least in my mind, God created not only a mature atom, but he also created a mature universe. Some say that that would make God deceptive. I just say it makes God consistent. Beyond creating a grown-up universe for a grown-up man, we must keep in mind that the cataclysmic flood of Genesis chapter 6 took place. And anyone who has ever dealt with flooding issues in or around their home know the damage that a small amount of water can cause, let alone a flood of immensely destructive proportions. We can certainly say the following with confidence. No fossil deposits even remotely comparable to the known fossil beds of ancient time are being formed today. And that gives credence to some past catastrophe having produced the ones that we do have. We can also say with confidence that the thousands of large complex species such as the mammoth deposits in Siberia are either best explained by the flood or by the abnormal weather patterns that followed the flood. And furthermore, Dr. Andrew Snelling says with confidence we don't find marine creatures such as fish, clams and corals buried and fossilized on the seafloor where they once lived. Instead, we find most of them buried in sedimentary rocks on the continents, even on high mountains. If interested, you can find a great many resources that provide detailed support for a young earth perspective. For now, I just want to point out that it's by no means unreasonable for us to hold to a literal six-day, 24-hour creationist view. In fact, the Hebrew word used for day in Genesis chapter 1 is yom, which always, always refers to an actual 24-hour day unless the context clearly indicates otherwise. On these grounds, some have then tried to argue, well, days one through three aren't solar days, so at least those days could be progressive rather than a literal 24-hour. But God had already established the pattern for a day, even though the sun, as we will see, comes later. Second, what are we to make of years? More specifically, how are we to reconcile the length of people's lives during the early record that we find in Scripture? After bringing forth light, day two indicates that God made what the NIV translates as a vault to separate the waters above from the waters below. The Hebrew word is sometimes translated as ferment or expanse, but I believe the NIV translation gets it more correct. It's something like a blue vault. It's like a curtain that hangs over the earth. 
Moses is describing creation from a vantage point of what our eyes naturally see. And when we look up, we see the vastness of the blue sky. So how does God form this vault? Hopefully in the reading of the text earlier, you noticed that there were waters above and that there were waters below. The waters below are pretty easy to identify. They are the waters that would eventually make up the oceans and the seas. But what about the upper waters? Cannot say that these upper waters are clouds because the text clearly shows that the upper waters are above the sky. In light of this, I support what is called the canopy theory. This theory teaches that there was initially a water vapor canopy over the earth, which would have provided something of a protective greenhouse effect for our humanity and for earth's habitat. It seems that scripture elsewhere supports a celestial ocean or canopy initially surrounding the earth. Psalm 104 verses 2 and 3 read that the Lord stretched out the heavens like a tent and laid the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. Of course, this canopy eventually collapsed and it rained down upon the earth, which helps to explain how the whole world was flooded in judgment. A perfect, protective environment is the first of two reasons for explaining why people lived so long before the flood, but that cannot provide the final word concerning the age of early humanity. Noah, for instance, lived another 350 years after the flood. And ages of humanity continued to carry on beyond what we readily identify all the way to Moses, who was 120 years old when he died. For what it's worth, in addition to the early protective canopy, I would suggest that humanity was not created to die. Yet because of sin, there is a degenerative progression moving from Adam to me, moving from life to death, moving from the intention of living with God forever to the death that sin brings. And this view you might observe runs counter to an evolutionist human advancement theory. Most importantly, why do days and years matter? Isn't it interesting that the only time in the creation account where we don't get a verification that it was good is on the second day? Go back and, go back and read that. To say why that's the case, much like other bits and pieces of the sermon so far, is entirely speculative. But I suggest that it's because God knew what was going to happen later at the flood when he unleashed the celestial ocean on the earth. How would God know that that was going to come about? Well, he is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing, and he is sovereign meaning he is in complete control. And I also suggest that God created free beings, first angels, then humanity, for beings to be truly 
free, God would have to create both angels and humans apart from his absolute perfections. After all, had the Lord made them to possess his absolute perfections, they would have simply been robots. So in the absence of God's absolute perfections, what is possible? The answer is imperfection. In other words, God neither created nor caused sin, but he did permit it by creating free beings. Now, angels, as we mentioned last Sunday, were already created as a host. Therefore, no redemption exists for them. Fallen angels, having been created in an immortal state in heaven and having freely entered into rebellion, were eternally separated from God. And being absent from God, the giver of every good gift is hell. But humanity shall become a host. In fact, God tells Abraham that his seed would become more numerous than the created stars in the sky. This way, by this way, it comes to be how the first three days of creation most clearly connect to our lives. For you see, God makes covenants with his people throughout Scripture. And in doing so, he speaks, he separates, and then he puts things in proper relationship with himself and with others. So at creation, God divides and God puts things together in a right relationship. That's why when we come to day three, there's the separation of the land and the sea. And that is said to be good. Notice the language that is taking place. Whereas the waters had once been everywhere, God now commands that they be in one place. And that one place runs off the land. The land and the sea are therefore brought into proper relationship with one another. And as scripture unfolds, this is quite compelling to me anyway. As scripture unfolds, Israel comes to represent the land, while the Gentiles come to represent the seas. Ray Steadman says, the land or the earth is used frequently as a symbol for Israel throughout the Old Testament. Israel is viewed as a nation with stability because it had God as its head. It had structure, it had order, it had formation, and so it was depicted as land. But the sea, the sea is used in many places in Scripture to describe the Gentile nations, pagan nations by and large, which had no inner stability like the sea because there was no recognition of the authority of God. One of the clearest examples of this is found in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel has visions at night and views the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, which are explained in the text as being Gentile nations. So when Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 says, there will no longer be any sea, 
I personally take that to mean that no divisions will exist any longer between Jew and Gentile in the new heaven and the new earth. I read it like this because Jesus breaks down all division and brings together all who have faith in his atoning work at Calvary, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. In light of the redemption and reconciliation of the land, the Jews, and in light of the redemption and reconciliation of the sea, the Gentiles, through the new covenant that Jesus ratifies by his blood at Calvary, return with me, if you're still with me, to my initial questions. What are we to make of a day? And what are we to make of a year? When it's all said and done, you and I need to make sure that we don't get so caught up in various scientific questions that somehow we miss the greater point of Genesis chapter 1. Once again, Moses did not write Genesis as a science textbook. Instead, he wrote it to affirm the one true living God who created the world and who redeems his people. Ultimately, the Bible is a handbook of redemption. And although I personally see no reason to view a day as anything more than a literal 24-hour period, I must point out that we no longer observe days in the way that God designated them at creation. See, we are captive to a Roman calendar and its conception of time, not to how Jews would have perceived it. Moses presents a clear refrain in the creation account. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day, and so on. For the Hebrew day, it was from sunset to sunset. And such a movement from darkness into light is hardly accidental. Recall how John's resurrection account begins in darkness, only to move into light on the first day of the week. Church, we end in day. And so the importance of asking what is a day during the creation account, whether you believe like me in a literal 24 hours or you believe in a progressive period of time matters little to me personally. In my mind, that seems far less important than for us to ask this question. What is the purpose of day if I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. And what does this dawning of a new day, what does this being brought out into his marvelous light have to say to you and me about our years? How beautiful this is, and I pray that you at least bask in the magnificence of this. There is in Christ, you see, a restorative progression moving now from our limited years into infinity. Moving now from death into life. Moving now from the judgment that our sin deserves to abiding with God forever. Yet again, you see my mom beholds him. And that makes all the difference to me about days and years because it's coming a time where we will be with him forever. And it's possible, it is possible only because Jesus came among us to be the perfect man. And here's the thing. We move into this eternal life freely by choosing to embrace Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. See, we were created as free beings, absent of the absolute perfections of God. But in Christ, when we choose Christ, the perfect man, and we are covered by his blood, oh, don't you see it? We will be made like him. That's what 1 John 3, 2 says. We will be glorified and recreated to sin no more. We will be perfect like Christ. Not because we were made as robots in the beginning, but because we will have been remade through faith in the atoning love of Jesus, who forms a protective and perfect canopy over us. And his canopy, Christ's canopy, beloved of God, it will never break. It's over us for eternity. And for me, again, with all the questions that sometimes can be raised in our minds, to me, that is certain. And I would say it's the reason why I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, because I believe with all of my heart if you give your life to him, if you give your days and your years to him, oh, what will he do? When he comes again, he will say, enter into my kingdom.
dwell with the triune God forevermore. Pray with me. Christ, in my humanness, there are moments, there are times in which I have questions that different things that I just don't understand creep into my mind and into my heart. And yet you have revealed to me that which is most certain. You have clearly made it known what my conscience bears is true. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of grace that flows down. That flows down from heaven, Christ, as you came to dwell among us. That you entered into our days, you entered into our years, so that we might have eternity with you. Christ, that is clear. I know it to be so, not only from what my heart and my mind tells me, but I know it to be so from what you have revealed in your word so clearly, a redemptive handbook that points me to my need of a Savior. Thank you, Christ, for being my Savior. And I pray today that if there's anyone in this sanctuary, if there's anyone who might watch this online or in some other way, that, that you would just speak to their minds and their hearts about their need, their need for a Savior that you have provided Jesus by your blood and ushered in a new covenant with us, your people. They would repent and they would be covered by the canopy of your love. This, Jesus, is my prayer in your name. Amen.